All right. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Mark. It's been too long since I walked back in on a Wednesday night and Mark was here warming up, practicing. That was good to hear tonight. We appreciate you guys leading us in worship on Wednesday nights. Here's what you're going to need for this part of the evening. You're going to need a Bible, and that can be one you hold in your hand. That can be one on your phone, on your iPad, whatever you like to use. But you'll need a Bible because we're going to look at some scriptures. And you also need an outline. And I'll just be honest with you, there's a, a few more of you than we were having last time and than I expected. So if you need an outline, I think there's a few in the back. If you need an outline, I'm out up here. Raise your hand. Catherine can bring you one. Look over, wave at her, wink at her. A few people over on this side. Yeah, Cody will go make some more if we need a few more. How many do you have back there? You got one extra. Cody, run over there in 5001. Okay. So if you need one when Crystal or Cody run back in here, then, uh, then flag them down. Um, I added something to this lesson this week. One of the blogs that I follow is a blog by Tom Rayner. Tom Rayner is the president of Lifeway, uh, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. He used to be a professor at Southern Seminary, and uh, I applied for the Ph.D. program that I did. I've told you this before, so I could study with him. And the first semester that I was to start classes, he left and went to Lifeway, so I never got to study with him. But he's a smart guy, and he is, without question, the, the world's leading church researcher. He studies growing churches and shrinking churches. He studies uh, healthy churches and sick churches. He studies churches that are vibrant and churches that are dying and everything in between. And he writes a blog, and you can just find it, www.tomrainer.com. And he had a, a post, I think this was on Monday, that he put it up, and it fits well with, with the beginning of this series that we're going to do on Wednesday nights, and so I put it on the screen. You don't have to try to write all these down. You can find it online easy, but he just had a post about 10 reasons why many churches aren't evangelistic. Now, let's be honest. If you asked any member of any church in the Bible Belt, is your church evangelistic, they would say what? Yes, of course we are, but research and data and just the hard, cold facts say many of them are not. They're just not. And here's the top ten reasons that he gives. We're not going to talk about all of them, but I just want to mention a few. Uh, one, they don't really believe people need Jesus. You go to a lot of churches, even right here in Odessa, and if you talk to them and say, what is it that folks really need when you go on a, a quote-unquote mission trip or you go on some sort of service project? What is it that people really need? What do they need more than anything? A lot of folks would say to you, they need education more than anything else. That's their number one need. And a lot of people would say to you, they need health care. That's the first thing they need. Some people would say to you, they need a meal is the most important thing they need, or they need this sort of assistance, or this sort of training, or this sort of help. And the reality is there are many churches, they just don't believe deep in their heart that folks really, really desperately need Jesus. And as a result, they're not evangelistic churches. Um, jumping down, how about the idea that churches are too busy to do evangelism? There's a lot of churches that 
when you look at them from the outside, you wouldn't put them in the category of sick, dying churches because you look at them and they're so busy. They're doing stuff all the time. They have a program for this and a program for that, and they meet at this time and they meet at that time, and they're going and going and going and doing and doing and doing. But if you stop and you think about all the stuff they're so busy with and you really are honest about it, it's all inwardly focused busyness, programs, activities, ministries. And he says, Rainer says, it's kind of hard and kind of direct, but I think he's true. He says a lot of churches have just turned into self-serving country clubs. They just only exist to keep the people who are there happy and to, to sort of keep things moving and keep the machinery running. So... Some are just too busy. Um, One of the things he said is it requires intentionality. This is the fourth one up there. If you don't plan to be evangelistic, you're not going to be evangelistic. Life is busy. You're busy. I'm busy. You have places to go, things to get done, stuff to scratch off your list. You don't have to work to fill up a day with stuff. And if you're not intentional about evangelism, it's just not going to magically happen on its own. So he gives these ten, and you can think about them, disagree with them, agree with them, whatever. But I think they're all true in in different situations. And to be honest with you, I don't think we've arrived on this list. I don't think our church has it all figured out. And I think if any church says, well, this is maybe a problem for other churches, but not for us, I think that church is in trouble. And I think we as a church have to constantly be looking at ourselves and and saying, why do we do the things that we do? Are we doing the things that we're supposed to be doing? Could we be doing these things more effectively or more faithfully? And we have to continually ask those questions. So there's something to think about. Our study on Wednesday nights, we've got 12 Wednesday nights until we break for Christmas. After Christmas, we'll do something new. But we're going to do one study all the way up through Christmas. And I toyed around with different names for this and different descriptions of what I wanted it to be and what I finally landed on is the title of the truth know it believe it share it defend it the truth know it believe it share it defend it Um, a few of you have asked me over the last few months what are we studying and I've told you we're studying the truth sounds exciting what are we really studying what's it going to be what are we going to talk about and I've hesitated to say, we're going to talk on Wednesday nights about how to share your faith. I've, I've been very hesitant to tell you that. And I'm even hesitant to tell you that tonight. Because some of you hear that, and you, I'll just be real honest. You can drop the spiritual act. You can forget, oh, I'm here on Wednesday nights. I love Jesus more than just the Sunday only people. And you can just say... When you tell me that we're going to do a program on how to share my faith, a lot of you just say, I don't want to do that. Can't we just go back and study those books of the Bible like we did last time? That was just, that was easier. And you're telling me we're going to actually study something that I have to, you expect me to take it out of here and do it and use it. And for some of you, that just kind of curls up inside of you and you think, yeah, I don't want to do that. Others of you hear that, and I say, we're going to do a a class or a study on how to share your faith, and immediately you start feeling guilty. And maybe you should feel guilty, and maybe it's just worked up guilt. But some of you just start thinking, 
Oh, I know I should be doing better than that. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm the worst. I'm terrible. Jesus, I'm probably not even saved. Can we just do a class on how to get saved? Can we do that first? Because I just, oh, I'm the worst, and I don't know. And you, it makes you anxious, and you start to feel a guilt trip already, and I don't want it to be that. I hope that it's not that as we go through these things. Some of you here, okay, we're going to have a class on how to share your faith, and you start thinking, some of you get excited. And you say, oh, this is great. He's going to tell me exactly what I need to say to every single person. And I get in any argument. And I'll be able to win any argument and make people look stupid. And I won't look stupid anymore. And I can convince everybody this is going to be the greatest. And it's not going to be that. It most certainly is not going to be that kind of class. Um, this last year when we took people to Kenya, one of the things that we did a little bit differently is we had some training where we sat down with folks who were committed to go on the trip. And we said, you have to participate in this evangelism training. If you're going to go on a mission trip, if you're going to pay thousands of dollars to go all the way around the world on a mission trip, we're not going to assume that you know what you're doing. Maybe you do know what you're doing. Great. But some of you don't because we get over there on some of these mission trips and some of our own people, they just look like the deer in the headlights. Like, you want me to say what? You want me to talk to? You want me? I thought that was Chris's job. I thought Chris was the mission pastor. I'm just here to take pictures. I'm just here to hug kids. No, you're here to share the gospel with somebody, and we want to make sure that you can do that. And uh, we got good feedback from that class. And uh, in conjunction with that, one of the things that I do outside of our church is I teach seminary classes for B.H. Carroll. And one of the classes that I teach on a recurring basis is they call the class Christian Witness, but it's a personal evangelism class. And uh, so I've been thinking about that over the last couple years and tweaking the way that I teach that class. And we've done some training with our people on Wednesday nights. And uh, all of that coming together, I thought, let's just do it on, let's just do it on a, a Wednesday night study. And let's work through some of these things. I hope at the end of this, not that you have some memorized thing that you can vomit out on people who don't go to church. I don't want you to do that at all. But I hope what you can do is you can sit down and talk to those people and be comfortable about it. That we give you some tools for understanding what it is that we believe. And we sort of put those things in categories where when you talk to your family members or your kids or your parents or your grandkids or whoever, you've got some mental go-to hooks that you can rely on. And I'll be real honest with you. It's entirely possible that as we go through this and we talk about the gospel and how to, sh how to share it, it's entirely possible that some of you have never really heard the gospel. And in teaching this group how to share it, you may hear it for the very first time. And we may get halfway through this study and you may say, I, I've been in church many, many years and I never, I never connected those dots and I never put those things together. And I think that would be a great thing as well. So let's talk about the title and break this down real quick. Know it, believe it, share it, defend it. The first part of what we're going to talk about involves your mind. If you're going to know something, that involves your mind. And here's where we're going to start flipping around to some passages. And uh, I'm not going to put these on the screen. You can look them up later if, if you want to do that. But look what Jesus says in Matthew 22. We won't look all these up, but we'll look a few up as we go. Matthew 22 and I'm talking about verse 37. 
Somebody came and asked Jesus what the greatest commandment in the law was. And this was Jesus' answer in Matthew twenty two thirty seven: You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Part of the way that you love God or don't involves your mind. And let me just be real straight on this point. In American Christianity, just broadly speaking, okay, not picking on your Sunday school class, I'm not picking on our church, I'm not picking on our town, I'm just saying American Christianity. There is a rampant, out-of-control, anti-intellectualism when it comes to Christianity. There is a total and complete dependence on feeling and your gut and your emotion. There was a prominent pastor just within the last couple of weeks. Pastor is one of the largest churches in the United States. He's preaching a sermon series. And one of the messages in that series, the driving point that he kept talking about is we need to stop basing our faith on what the Bible says so much and just believe in Jesus, that he rose from the dead. That's just, that should be the bedrock of our faith, not truth from the scriptures, from the Bible. And people hear that and say, yeah, you're right. No one bats an eye at that. You see this anti-intellectualism when you go to the Christian bookstore and you look at the bestseller shelf, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. And those books are on the bestseller shelf for a reason. Those bookstores are making money, hand over fist on those books. And nine out of ten of them are nothing but emotional, feeling-driven drivel. There's not an ounce of intellectual thought in any of them. There's not any grounding in Scripture in any of them. It's just, I, this is just kind of how I feel about it. And it's just, I'm going with my gut. Get on Facebook and read the articles that people repost all the time. So many of them are just like these vague broad, open letters of some Christian just ranting and raving. They're not trying to base anything in Scripture. They're not using their mind to think through complex situations. They're just saying, that's just kind of, that's how I feel about it. I don't care how you feel about it. Part of the way that you and I are called to love God is with our mind. You have to use your mind if you want to love God. And Americans are really good at saying, with all your soul, with all your heart, you got to feel it, you got to mean it, you got to be genuine. It's great, but you can't just cut your mind off and pretend like that's not part of the equation. John 3, you can read John 3. That's when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and they're talking about different things. Jesus kind of asks Nicodemus some questions and Nicodemus really doesn't know how to answer those questions. And Jesus says, you're, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You don't understand it with your mind. You don't get it. There's got to be some comprehension in your faith, Nicodemus. So he, he gives him a mild rebuke for that. Secondly, believe it. That involves your heart. It involves your heart. If your personality is like my personality, this one is more difficult for you than the first one. The first one's easy for me. It's sort of analytical and factual and black and white. And this one is a little bit different. And Jesus talks about in John 1, people who believed in him. What does that mean? It means those who received him. And you look in James 2.19. James says, 
you think God is one, you have some orthodox definition of God, you can rattle off the church creeds and quote Bible verses to me, fantastic. The demons can do all of that. The demons know it intellectually. There's no lack of knowledge on their part. The problem is their heart. There's no love for God. There's no commitment to God. And so part of what we're talking about on Wednesday nights is not just to say to you, here's things you need to know and tell other people, but to say to you, here's things that need to be precious to you. Here's things that need to be at the core of who you are. Not just things you can answer like, what year is your car? Well, it's a 2005. What make is it? What model? Well, it's a GMC Yukon. There's just factual things you can spit out. It doesn't have any attachment to me. It doesn't have any real meaning or value to me. It's just facts. And what we're talking about has to be more than that. Thirdly, we're going to share it. That involves your mouth. And after you fill that in, I'd like you to turn to Acts 8. This is a passage I bet we'll come back to on Wednesday nights. Acts 8. While you're turning to Acts 8, I'll just mention a a reference to a former older Baptist preacher is a guy named Adrian Rogers. Some of you may have heard of him. Maybe you listened to him on the radio. Adrian Rogers used to say, it's a fact in Baptist churches that 99% of our people who grow up in church and they're raised in church and they raise their kids in church and they die in church and we bury them and have their funeral in the church, 99% of those people will never lead another person to faith in Jesus in their entire life. 99% of us will never do that. I have no idea if that's true. I have no idea where he got that number. But if it's even in the ballpark, it's terrible. Look at Acts 8. They stoned Stephen, and it says Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. There's a persecution Everybody has to leave town, but the apostles don't leave. Everyone else leaves. The church goes, and the leaders of the church stay. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen, and they made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4, here's the kicker. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Who was the one scattered? One Peter, one James, one John. It wasn't the apostles. It was the church. And what did they do as they were scattered? They went about preaching the word. And you read that and you think, wait a minute. I thought Acts one eight says that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they would be his witnesses. And Jesus was talking to the disciples. He was talking to the disciples, but he's really talking to the church. And he's saying not to pastors, not to missions pastors, not to Sunday school teachers, You're going to be my witnesses, and I'm going to give you power to do what I'm calling you to do, and you're going to tell people about me. And when this church is persecuted, they don't go out being scattered, whining and complaining, this isn't fair, I miss Jerusalem, I wish I could go home. They go out preaching the word, using their mouth to say to others the good news. Number four, defending it. This kind of is your whole self. This is all of you. And I'll explain what I mean here with a silly analogy, okay? I have a group of guys, and uh, sometimes on Thursdays we go eat. And in that group of guys, there are some 
UT fans, Longhorn fans, and there are some Oklahoma fans, some Sooner fans. And we sit there at lunch and we talk about different things and we always end up talking about football and some UT fan will mouth off something about OU and some OU fan will mouth off something about UT and back and forth they go, da-da-da-da-da. And I just kind of sit there. I'm a Kansas fan. (laughs) We don't really play football. So basketball season's coming. I'll talk then, but for now I'll just kind of sit there. And look at this. I I don't try to defend anything right? Number one, I don't know a whole lot about OU or UT, especially compared to these guys who live and breathe it and they get on the blogs and they go to the games and all this stuff. I don't know everything they're talking about. I don't have any conviction deep within me that the Longhorns are the greatest or the Sooners are the greatest or either of them are the greatest or the Red River rivalry game is the greatest rivalry game. I, I, don't, I don't really care. It's not important to me. So I sit there, and my mouth is quiet, and I don't defend anything, and I just, I'm there. That's a lot of people when it comes to Jesus. There's some discussion, there's some debate, there's some question, and they're just silent. And what's the real reason they're silent? Well, they don't know what they need to say. They maybe pay lip service to Jesus by going to church on Sunday and doing religious things, but he's really not precious to them, he's not valuable to them. And the result is they're just sort of silent and they don't feel any need to defend him, any compulsion to defend him. First Peter 3.15, we're not going to look it up now, but we'll come back to it in this study, says, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Defend it. You've got to be ready to do that. And that involves really your whole self. So here we go. Let's talk about just some biblical foundations, starting in the Old Testament, Okay. We think of the Old Testament as a story that focuses on Israel. It is that. Israel is undeniably the focus of the Old Testament. However, there are hints throughout the Old Testament that God has a heart for all the nations and all the peoples. Meaning, even as God focuses for a time on Israel, and he's working through Israel, it's never to the exclusion of the other nations and the other peoples. There's always an opportunity for the nations to come and to be part of what God's doing in Israel. There's always this expectation that if Israel would do what they're supposed to do, the nations would see them as a light and be drawn to it. Um, You can look most of these verses up. Let's just look a couple of them up. Look at Exodus 12, 38. Exodus 12, 38. This is right after all the plagues, and the last plague was the the Passover and the death of the firstborn. And they plunder the Egyptians. If you remember that part of the story, they ask them for their silver and their gold, and they are compelled. God compels these people to just hand it over, and they take it as wages for their, their many years in slavery. And look at verse 37. It says, The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, flocks, and herds. It talks a little bit about their journey. The little detail right there in verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them. What the author of Exodus is telling you, what Moses is telling you is, When Israel is brought out of Egypt, 
There's a whole bunch of people living in Egypt at the time who were not Jewish. They were not Hebrew. And they're watching these plagues. Flies, locusts, darkness, hail, all these plagues. And they see the death of the firstborn. And they come to their senses. And when Israel gets ready to leave, they say, you know what? I think we're going to go with these guys. Not Jewish people. That's what Moses was sent to rescue, right? The Jewish people. But with them, along with them, this mixed multitude goes up. Uh, Psalm 67. If you go and read any of these tonight, read Psalm 67. Um, that's a great passage that talks about all of the nations. Look at Jonah 4.11. Jonah 4.11. Jonah's a little bitty book right after Obadiah, right before Micah. The very last verse in the book of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. Fish swallows a guy, spits him out. Jonah 4.11. God says to Jonah, Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is what I want you to understand. Jonah's pouting because God doesn't blow up the Assyrians. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, the Assyrians who live right next to Israel, they don't know their right hand from their left. God's not saying to them, they haven't learned the concept of left and right yet. This is an idiom, right? He's saying, they don't know anything, Jonah. They, They live right next door to you as your neighbors for hundreds of years. You're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. You're supposed to be a light for the nations. You've lived right next door to these people For centuries, they don't know anything. Whose fault is that, Jonah? It's your job to set the example for them, to speak with them, to be different than them. And instead of them seeing something different in you and learning the truth about the one true God through you, you look exactly like them. And if you want to translate Jonah 4.11 into, into our day, it would be something like, Think of the people in your life who have known you for 20, 30 years that you've never opened your mouth to. You've been around them every day, every week, every month. You've seen them. You've talked to them. You've talked about football. You've talked about sports. You've talked about kids. You've talked about work. They don't know their right hand from their left. So even in the Old Testament, there's this emphasis on all of the nations, all of the peoples. Jump to the New Testament. The New Testament explicitly sends us out into the world with a message to share. No Christian is exempt from this call to take the truth to those who are lost. And some of you read that and you get really nervous. You don't even know if you can fill in the word exempt. Because you're like, if I fill in the word exempt, that might mean I move to Africa or China. or I don't even know if I can do it. I just, I'll leave that one blank doesn't mean all of us are going to do the same thing. doesn't mean we're all going to serve in the same way. doesn't mean that God has gifted us all equally in different areas when it comes to sharing our faith. What it does mean, and these passages are undeniable, it does mean that no one is exempt from the mission to make disciples of all the nations. No one gets a pass on that. You don't get to say, well, making disciples, that's really not my spiritual gift. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's part of your job. That's part of the job description. That's part of the the character 
portrait of somebody who follows Jesus is that you're passionate about making disciples. So you can read the Great Commission passages. There's five of them. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 21, Acts 1-8. You know many of those. You can read those on your own. I want you to look at Romans 10. Romans 10. The unescapable reality in the book of Romans is that if anyone is going to come to faith in Jesus and spend eternity in heaven, they have to at some point hear the good news, which means somebody has to open their mouth and share it with them. You can't avoid that. Romans 10, verse 14. Well, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How are they going to call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they going to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they going to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Not all have obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us. So, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you think about all the lost people in the world. All these billions of people who don't know Jesus. Think about the hundreds of people that live on your block or thousands in your neighborhood who are not followers of Jesus. If they're going to follow him and have eternal life, somebody has to open their mouth and tell them the good news. Somebody has to do it. It's not just going to happen on its own. Paul lays that out in Romans 10. Look at 2 Corinthians. Just flip to the right just a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5. This one is really inescapable, that if you have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, it is your your, uh, responsibility to be his, his ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You've heard that verse. I bet almost everyone in this room has read that verse or heard it or studied it or maybe even memorized it. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new is coming. We say, that is great news. God makes me new, he makes me clean, I'm a new creation. Hallelujah. Keep reading. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and, 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 he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you are one of the ones who have been reconciled to God, Not only have you been brought back into a relationship with the Father, but you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And nobody gets to say, well, I would like to be reconciled, but thanks but no thanks on the ministry of reconciliation. I'm just going to leave that to my pastor. If you get the reconciliation, you also get the ministry of reconciliation. So look what it says. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us. Us who? Those who have been reconciled. He's entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We have a message to share. That means you open your mouth. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. If you want to say, I've been reconciled to God 
back in a relationship with the Father through Christ. And you've also got to understand, not only did you get the reconciliation, but you've been given the ministry of reconciliation and this call to be his ambassador. You can read the rest of these under the New Testament, all of them emphasizing that we have a message to share and no one's exempt from this. Now, back to where we started for a minute. I told you, I don't want this to be a, I'm going to give you a, here's the 10 things you need to memorize and now you can just go share this with everybody you know. Just memorize the sheet, go out and tell people that. This is why I don't want to do that, okay? Um, The first church I pastored in Kentucky, several of our key leaders said, we need to have an evangelism training. We need to have a a training, teach our people to share share the gospel. And uh, so we did a sort of a canned study on how to preach the gospel. Just something you go to the bookstore, you buy it, you pop in the video, you watch it, and it tells you what to memorize and all that sort of stuff. And I promise you, sweet people at that church, right? But I promise you, when we finished that class, not one person went out and said anything to anyone about anything that we had talked about. That's, I mean, that's kind of discouraging as a pastor, but it's true. We spend week after week after week doing this sort of memorize the thing, go through the thing, and then you go t- just go tell everybody what you memorized. Nobody that memorized the thing went out and told anybody any of it. Not one new person joined our church. Nobody got saved. Nobody came back and said, this is the greatest thing ever. It just didn't happen. So then we moved to Oklahoma and uh, pastored a church in Oklahoma. And they had recently gone through uh, another program where you memorize a very long outline, like a three-page outline. Like, take this, make the font half the size, fill it up front and back, and you got like three pages. And they went through and they memorized all these verses and the steps and all this stuff. And their big plan was they were going to go through the little town we lived in. They were going to knock on every door in town. And they were going to give them this three-page dissertation of information. How do you think that went over? How would it go over when somebody comes to your house and knocks on your door and has three pages of information that they want to vomit up on you? You say, I got laundry to do, I got a friend coming over, I got to go mow the grass, I got I to do something, I got to clean the lint out of the dryer, I'm busy right now, I don't have time for this. That's how it went over. Um, I don't want to pretend like if, if you memorize something, just call it a canned approach, okay? I don't want to pretend like God can't use that, of course he can use that, and The programs that I talked about that you can go buy at the Christian bookstore, I mean, they sell them. And I have no doubt that people have got saved from listening to the the faith outline or the share Jesus without fear outline or all these different things. I, I know that God can use those things and does use those things. I also know just reality of how we feel about that stuff when people do it to us. And so let me just warn you about the danger of a a canned gospel presentation. Number one, People can sense the insincerity of a canned gospel presentation. So do you ever have those guys that come knock on your door and they got like a laminated piece of paper and they're selling magazines and they want you to buy magazines and their sales pitch is about this enthusiastic. Hello, my name's Landon and I'm out in the neighborhood today selling magazines 
and maybe you would like to buy some of them. That doesn't get me real excited about magazines. I'm not interested. No thanks. Compare that with somebody who is selling something they really believe in. When they talk to you about it, you think, they really think this is a great product, or they really believe this can change my life, or they really believe that this is a handy thing to have. People can tell that. You can spot it a mile away. You can spot it when people come knock on your door. Maybe it's a couple of Mormon missionaries. Maybe it's a couple of Jehovah's Witness missionaries. We've had both since we've lived here. And you can tell when one of those people, you know you can. You can tell this person really believes it or this person's just doing it because they're expected to be out here doing it. You can tell a million miles away. We can spot that. And people can spot that in you. And I can teach you some little dopey outline to learn and you can memorize it and you can go to work or school or home and share it with somebody but people are going to hear that and just think "Eh, really that's all the enthusiasm you have you just sort of going through the bullet points here people can people can spot that related to that when when you teach a canned presentation you're teaching for the test you're not teaching to really learn some of our teachers in the room could probably describe this better than I did in that statement but I think you understand what I'm saying In school, when you have kids that are going to have to take a test, sometimes you teach them only so that they can pass a test. And teachers will tell you that's not the best way to teach anybody anything. They don't really get it. They don't really learn it. And if I just throw up some little outline and say, here's what you need to memorize, go out and share it with somebody, you're not passionate about that. You're not serious about that. You're not going to give the time to to really be serious about that. You're just learning it so you can jump through a hoop and you can give some sort of recitation to somebody. When you, when you teach a canned presentation, sometimes the focus becomes winning arguments and convincing people, which is not evangelism. That is not evangelism. Going out and arguing with people. That is not what we're trying to equip you to do. So there's a really popular evangelism training program called Way of the Master. And Kirk Cameron does it, and a guy named Ray Comfort do it. And they go out, and they teach these people a handful of little lines to use. And then they go out, and they video it, and they just get in arguments with people. They just argue. And I've watched a ton of those videos, and I just think, it's just an argument. That's not what we're called to do, right? That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't go out and just argue with people, right? When people weren't interested in what Jesus was saying, he just let them walk. Go ahead. I'm not going to twist your arm. There was people who even said they wanted to follow Jesus, and he said, no, you really don't. No, you don't. He didn't try to argue with them. He didn't try to convince them of anything. He just shared the truth with them. This is the way it is. There you go. What are you going to do with it? And sometimes we turn it into just arguments and trying to convince people that we're right and they're wrong. If that's your approach to evangelism, if you say to me, I want to learn to share my faith so I can go convince this person that I'm right and they're wrong, don't. Please don't. It's not helpful. No one's going to get saved by you just trying to argue with somebody. It's not the point. Our job is sharing truth and trusting the Spirit to work. John 16 says it is the Spirit's job to convict people about sin and righteousness and judgment. It is not your job. It is your job to open your mouth and share the truth. Trust the Spirit will do His job. One last thing, we'll wrap up. I just want you to be aware of the reality of spiritual warfare. So, 
When you set out to share the gospel with a lost person, you are entering an ancient spiritual conflict. Rest assured, Satan will not just sit back and let you attack his kingdom. And I think sometimes we just forget this. We just totally forget that this is what we're doing when we share the gospel with somebody. We think of it as I got to win an argument, I got to answer a question, I got to prove I'm right, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to. You're entering an ancient spiritual war, a war for the souls of people. And there is a person, we're going to talk about this on Sunday, a lot of people doubt the reality of the devil. He's real. And he is not going to sit back and let you plunder his kingdom. Ah, okay, you can have them. This is not how it works. And you can go through and read some of these verses. I put Job 1 and 2 on the list just so you, you read that and you realize all the spiritual things going on behind the scenes, Job never knew what was happening, right? He never knew. He never saw any of it. Even in the end, when, when his fortunes were reversed and things turned around for him and God blessed him, he never got an explanation of what was really going on. And you may say, you know, just you say it's an ancient spiritual conflict. It looks like I'm just arguing with somebody. Well, it might look like that. That's not really what's happening. There's more going on than what you can see. And that's very real. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's real. So keep that in mind. I want you to look at Acts 26. A while back I asked a group of guys that were together to uh, share their testimony. How they became believers. I gave them about three minutes to do it. And not one of them not criticizing them because I don't do it either. Not one of them described their salvation like we're about to read in Acts, 27, Acts 26, verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. This is Paul talking with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. It shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. Rise and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen. You have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Excuse me, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Verse 18 is what I want you to see. I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The guys that I'm telling you about, not one of them said, I used to serve the power of Satan. I grew up, I was a five-year-old brat following the prince of darkness. Not one of them said that. Not one of them said my eyes were fixed on evil, on darkness. And I'm not saying the way that they described it or that I describe it as bad or unbiblical. But I just think this is an interesting picture of what conversion really involves. When a person puts their faith in Jesus, they're turning from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. And when you set out to share the gospel with somebody, that's what you're trying to do. 
You're trying to take one of his and make them one of his. You're asking God to use you in that process. That's a serious thing. That's not just winning an argument. That's not just quoting the right Bible verses. That's spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 4. We'll look at that one. You can read the rest. 2 Corinthians 4. Starting in verse 1. Paul tells the church, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We don't want to be disgraceful in our ministry or underhanded. We don't want to be sneaky. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. We're not going to change this to try to get people to buy into it. We're not going to try to be cunning. We're not going to give the bait and switch, you know, promise them one thing, then switch it on them when they pray a prayer. We're not going to do that. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We're just going to be open about the truth. Verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. We don't want to try to manipulate anybody into following Jesus. Kid, grown up, somebody on their deathbed, we don't want to try to do that. That's not what being a Christian and an ambassador for Christ is about. It's just about an open declaration of the truth. This is the truth. This is what God calls you to do. And we don't think that we can change anybody's mind. We can change anybody's heart. These people are blinded by the God of this world. We can't do anything about that. But we know the God who spoke light into darkness. And just like he spoke light into darkness, he can speak light into people's hearts. It's not our job to do that. It's God's job. And so we're just going to present the truth. Here's what it is. And we're going to trust that God's going to win the battle, the spiritual battle in that respect. So just remember, as we go through this study, as you think about the people in your life who need to hear the good news, it's not just winning arguments, it's not just convincing people of facts, but it is a spiritual battle for people's souls. And when you think about that, it ought to move you to prayer. And that's how we're going to end our study here tonight. We're going to pray together. So you bow and let's pray. Father, help us to be ambassadors. Help us to be witnesses. Help us to be disciple makers. As we look to your word for answers and guidance and truth, we pray that you would equip us, not just so that we can quit back with an answer to a question or or make someone look foolish or win an argument, but so that we can be faithful to the truth of the gospel, we can share it with the people in our lives, and we can trust you to change hearts, to open hearts, to shine light into darkness to give people the ability to turn from the power of Satan to the power of God, to move them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Father, that's your job. That's your spirit's job to bring conviction. And we pray that as we're equipped and as we go out and as we open our mouth, uh, that you would do your work as we're faithful to do what you've called us to do. 
Give us wisdom. Guide us in this study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.